you know, your, your dad and Jim would take these really unexpected harmony parts. They, they, they wove in a strange way, for sure. And it was like trying to, yeah, weave, um, you know, things that shouldn't work. Right. And, and it's beautiful. You just really, it creates so much, so much space and becomes this big fabric. Welcome to the Shellcats, a show about music, culture, and Memphis. As we live into our mission of building community through music, education, and diversity, we look forward to interviewing artists and musicians and hearing about how they are writing their own stories, and building their own communities. 85 years strong and with a rich history, the Levitt Shell has stood the test of time as a beacon of hope in the heart of Memphis. I can actually do that with my time. This podcast is brought to you by Orion Federal Credit Union, where a big part of us is being a big part of the community. Visit orionfcu.com to see how Orion is redefining banking. Hi, and welcome to the Shellcast, episode 19. In today's episode, we're airing the first half of a special two-part interview with Emmy and Grammy award-winning author, historian, and filmmaker, Robert Gordon. Robert and Memphis musician Steve Selvage sat down for a conversation about Robert's incredible book, It Came From Memphis. Here's part one of our interview with Robert Gordon. Robert Gordon. Steve Selvage, man. Here nice we are, 25-some-odd years later, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were making a... Video for Big Ass Truck about 25 that's, years That's right. Ago. Yeah, I was thinking about that because Kent, like, while it came out in 96, I very much think of that as a 1995. Like, we were all sort of in this cahoots together doing stuff. So you got updated and revised. Uh, it came from Memphis. It's nice to see it get a fresh coat of paint. Let me tell you. Right. The photos look great. I'd been living with a really crappy edition for, right. you know, this lightning press stuff just doesn't look right. And, and Third Man stepped up right. and said they would do it. And I was thrilled. Well, and that's great. Cause like you're talking, you're coming from a very tactile sort of standpoint too, like a physical copy. And, yes. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I do still think of books as yeah, right? the physical book because I, I guess I still hold them when I read. <laughs> so speaking more to that, how does one come about sort of reissuing a book? How does, how do you get from point A to point B there? Uh, I went, I had a uh, contract with Simon & Schuster. Mm -hmm. There wasn't an, an escape clause. Um, my agent told me that lightning press, instant press books aren't whatever the terminology is in the contract. They're, they don't fit that. So I said, either publish it and make it look good right. or let it go. Right. They chose to let it go and third man chose to pick it up. And I'm a happy camper. And there it is, <laughs> looking good, man. I like, I like the colorway there. Um, and so this gave, gave you some opportunities because obviously in 25 years, things have, lots of things have changed, certainly. I, um, one of the most interesting things was I got a letter. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of letters, calls, and complaints and verbal assaults right. in restaurants, you know, like, I should have been in yeah, that book. Yeah, of course, yeah, <laughs> man. You left me out. <laughs> but, but one really hung with me. Uh, a woman I, I didn't know at the time wrote and said, my first husband is in the book and I'm the wife of the husband-wife puppeteer duo. My second husband is in the book and I helped him research right. uh, Dewey Phillips. And, you know, and she cited Marion Keisker, Sam Phillips's 
female assistant who helped discover Elvis, and she cited Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, and said, <laughs> remember the ladies. And so 24 years later, sure. I called her up, I said, uh, Linda Crossway for Terry. Right. I finally have a chance to, because I, to, to fix this, to amend this. Sure. I wanted to get more dimension in by getting, I, I had lots of female perspective in the book, Marsha Marsha was all through that, yeah. Um, Mary Lindsay. Mary Lindsay, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. several other people. But, um, but I, I interviewed about 10 more. Right. 10 more uh, for this go-round. Well, yeah, I think that's and great. feathered them in, you know. It's right. like, I didn't want to change the footprint of the book, but I just wanted to let in a little more light. So every now and again, something kind of pops up that might be, you know. And I had some old errors, like the box tops got on me because they had recorded more than I said. Right. Which one of them told me. I was just quoting what they said. But right. other one said, no, he was wrong. And, <laughs> you know, so it took a long time to get these things correct. Right, right, yeah. Because, you know, rock and roll is so clear cut. <laughs> and people's remembrances. Everybody remembers. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, I mean, you know, and then we're talking 2020, which is obviously an odd year for everybody. But, yep. you know, but like, so you included sort of a, a bit of an update for. Yes. And then, and it, um, in addition to everything else that's changed, including a new foreword, um, I added a last chapter that sort of updates the scene. Mm -hmm. You're in it, sir. Sure. <laughs> and um, I'm not and, getting paid. <laughs> and then a whole buying guide at the back, like right. you know, things to read, listen to, and watch. Right. Basically. Right. Um, one of the things I remember you telling me about this book when it first came out, and it obviously still holds true, is it's sort of you can kind of pick it up, yeah, wherever. I wrote it thinking about bands and vans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to be able to, for anybody to open a page and, oh, look, here, we're opening up to G G Jim Blake. You know, and I wanted, like, to be, go to any paragraph and go up or down one paragraph and be able to start a story right. and read it. You know, and it, it still works. It still works. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's great. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk about gays and, you know, and I, but I think, You've widened the gaze, you know, in, in terms of like not being like, like such a guy book or. I mean, it's still a guy book. Yeah. Even with the improvements, because um, it was a guy's world sure. at the time. And so interesting that like one of the comments I got, I, I interviewed Charlie Freeman's wife, Carol, uh -huh. and and you know talking to her, like the things she added was. Um, he was playing at the Shell, where we are right, today, right. On a, at a Memphis Country Blues Festival. Sure. She knew he was going to be taking acid all day long. <laughs> and so she said, so I made him steak and eggs for right. breakfast. Got to get a good base. Real practical. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, here's how the inside, here's how it worked from inside the home. <laughs> These are the nuts and bolts of, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, like, I, I look back into the stories that I've heard, and, like, we, me and, you know, Luther and Winston, we joke about it, like, our sort of adult life is way more sane than what seems to be what it was like with our dads. Like, cause I remember people just showing up yeah. at the house and that was always, I mean, it was this like kind of hippie culture thing or whatever. And I was just thinking like, if, if someone just showed up at my house now, I'd be like, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, did you, did you want to text me or like? It was a, it was a really different world. And I think it was a really tight world where yeah. that kind of showing up, yeah, yeah. you know, most of the time would be okay, and if it wasn't okay, it was 
sometimes you know violently not sure. okay. Oh yeah, exactly. It, things, yeah. things were. It wasn't any sort of utopia. Right. It was a sort of utopia, but it wasn't a trouble-free sure. utopia. Yeah. And the Memphis scene, and I always, and in my perspective, Mud Boys at the heart of it. Your dad, right. Jim Dickinson, Jimmy Crosswaite, and Lee Baker. You know, those four guys uh, were were a community themselves and the interesting thing was they didn't socialize a whole lot you know um i remember jim telling me yeah if i hang around them too much it affects my playing right right you know i need to keep that separation for when we get together yeah. to play i think it was a lot of phone conversations there was always a phone conversation <laughs> you know so mud boy was was mud boy your sort of entry point would you say my, to, my, to the to the Memphis sort of music scene. My Mud Boy was was the second dot that made a line. Okay. The first dot was here in Furry Lewis opening right. for the Rolling Stones. Right. Liberty Bowl Stadium, nineteen seventy five. Right. I think it yep. was. And then when I heard Mud Boy at, at a Beale Street, at at one of David Less and Irving Salky's Beale Street mm -hmm. and Fred Ford's Beale Street music festivals. Um, Hearing Mud Boy on stage was the f first time that that, that that old chestnut ever made sense. That old chestnut being rock and roll is nothing but blues played faster. Right. You know, right. I'd listen to the Stones and it sounded, it didn't sound like blues played faster to me. It sounded like rock and roll. Sure. But when Mud Boy played, I was like, oh, I hear Furry Lewis in this. And this line was connected. And then I found my way right. to a third dimension under that line. <laughs> what so all right you were a teenager i was a teenager yeah, man and you were you know partying and hanging out but i definitely I mean, was i watched mud boy with <laughs> one hand over one eye in the middle yes. of the day <laughs> so i mean if you can remember what do they i mean what do they look like to you i mean like because like you know if you're a teenager i guess i'm assuming they were in their 30s and like you know that's a that's a big difference yeah like they, 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 they had the spirit man they right. did not look they didn't look like a dad band. Right. Yeah. They didn't look like old guys trying to be young. Right. They, they were completely present. Um, I remember at the incident, the, the, the incident is what really, you know, sealed my fate. Right. Mudboy comes out and starts to play. Marsha and Connie are dancing down front. I'm a teenager down front and I'm going, wow. Yeah. You know, look at these ladies dancing like this. And, and the plug got pulled on the band because this was a family event and this was not family entertainment, right. the managers thought. Right. And there was a big fight that ensued and I remember Randall Lyon, who I didn't know at the time, but Randall came on stage and was just inciting a riot. And right. I was like, man, this is what rock and roll is all about, a riot. A riot, you know? there's a riot going on. And Randall didn't look like your average person looked in Memphis, Tennessee in 1975. He, you know, this was, was pre-punk. Punk was on the edge, and, and actually Alex sort of, uh, at, well, at this point it was 77. 77, that's right. Because yeah. Furry's 75, these guys are 77, and Alex came out playing the letter. Right. Very punk rock yes. version. He's, there's some of it, I've seen a I've preview seen of the, David Leonard's yeah, film. Yeah, I've seen some of, the, of that clip. video. Yeah. That, that mic stand didn't stand a chance. I remember yeah. sort of buckling underneath him. And <laughs> Very good friends of mine. Close personal friends of mine. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, Pretty amazing, and then uh, there was a lot of. I remember there was a lot of Dickinson shouting, but possibly at Irv. Irving, yeah, yeah, you, get, get, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah, you can yeah. just see it. And it, it's and as a kid, and I was literally down front. Right. Pat Rainer's got video. I found my afro in the video down front. Not hard to do. Legendary. Not, Legendary. Yeah. Yeah. Legendary afro. Yes. Yeah. Envious. Um, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Like that kind of scene, it wouldn't have been 
it would have made total sense if like Tojo Yamamoto like came through with a chair and like you know yes. pounced on somebody you yes. know, from a turnbuckle. It yes, was like, absolutely. Could have could have turned into a an Andy Kaufman esque right. sort of moment at any time. Well, all right. So speaking of sort of the that you know continuing to that era like. I feel like Memphis in the 70s. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. That's one of the parts of the book I'm most fascinated about is sort of like this Overton Square, liquor by the drink. Yeah. You know, and, and it's an interesting document like the, the and I think you mentioned this, that the, the third and cold of the morning of these sort of bookends. And so at some point you must have accessed that scene, you know. I mean, I know you might have been a little young to be, like yeah. rocking at Trader Dicks, but like, do you remember? I was rocking oh, at Trader Dicks. Okay, so yeah, but it was me. later. You know, right? I can't picture Campbell at Trader Dicks. Right. I I I seem to recall John Hampton getting arrested for playing drums behind Keith Sykes for being underage. Oh, right. And if he was underage, I was definitely sure. underage. Sure, he was just <laughs> invisible. But yeah, so I I I sort of I was in I was in an East Memphis high schooler. Right. And um, I started, we came into Midtown at some point and found the Ritz uh-huh. Ballroom and found Birth of the Blues across the street. Right. That was definitely when Jimmy Carter was president because they were selling Billy Beer. Billy Beer. So describe me like an, an average night out, uh, uh-huh. you know. If you were there, you can't <laughs> remember, my friend. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, for, for, for me it was usually hitting Midtown Literally, those two places were across the street from each other when, when, when the Blues at Birth of the Blues, which is now where the barbecue shop is, which on was Madison. The, the, it was also the Procope at some point. It was the Procope right. before, yeah, right. which right. I didn't, yeah. I had no clue at that time. Right. It was Birth of the Blues. They'd take a break. We'd stumble across the street, all underage. We'd go in a pack and just, as a pack, go in, you know, avoid the bouncer, just right. kind of <laughs> plow through. And inside might be, you know, Keith Sykes or Mac McAnally mm-hmm. or, or Danny Green or any number of things. And then that, they would go on break and we'd go right back across the street. And on the way home, we'd stop at Gibson's Donuts and right. <laughs> get some fuel. Some fuel, hit some, hay. some carbs <laughs> to get you back home. Well, that's the thing, it's just like, you know, nowadays it's like, there's so much media and there's so, there's so many things vying for your attention. Yeah. You know, and it seems to me that like from me coming up sort of generation after like I would talk to people like Dave Smith and it's like it just seems that there was just always people available and ready to see music yeah and 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 sort of you know like like a band could just really like you could pack a club and not be like a big band on the up and up or anything just you could just be a band playing music there was there was there was a lot of opportunity i think there was a lot of outdoor festivals uh-huh. i would go to all the time see jimmy doing his puppet show you know right um, and, and, and there was always an audience, definitely. I remember too that like, I remember one night behind Overton Square, a guy, and this was when I was at Overton Square with my parents, so I was right. really a kid, right. but a guy had big speakers outside his house and he was playing the White Album real loud. And people were just hanging out outside, you know, just, just hanging out, because somebody was providing wow. music and everybody was just hanging. Nobody was calling up BMI. To- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was got, a lot got in trouble. It's funny because I would interview people like, you know, old blues guys, Booker T. Lowry would talk about Beale Street being wide open, you know, and, and, and it wasn't until I got older, like in my 
30s or 40s and began to reflect on, on my teenage years, sure. I realized, oh, it was kind of wide open uh -huh. for, for me too, you know, not in the same way. There wasn't like gambling in the back rooms that I knew about. Well, right. there wasn't greens. Right, right. There wasn't, yeah, yeah. It was a little bit, but you know, n not, not like Booker described, but very similar looseness to the uh, atmosphere. Right. Want to learn more about how you can support the Levitt Shell and its mission of building community through music, education, and diversity? Head to levittshell.org. You can read up on our 85-year history and check out our schedule of live and virtual events. Visit our Shell Shop to grab all the swag and find out ways you can participate in our mission, whether that's through donations, volunteering, sponsoring a show, or becoming a member of our Shell Circle. Once again, that's levittshell.org. Going back to like, uh, well, back to Mudboy and stuff. When at one point did you like start to know individually who these people are, and 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 like and interface with them or, or? So Dickinson was a known quantity because I read the newspaper. Sure. I read Walter Dawson, the music critic, in the newspaper, and he was always quoting Dickinson. As soon as I became a writer, I was always quoting right. Dickinson. <laughs> uh, Stanley Booth called. Dickinson, a, a, a quote whore, <laughs> which is a great term. That is, you know, um, but he was extremely quotable and extremely sharp. Right, right. Jim, Jim yeah, he, was, he, you know, dependable and dependable. You know, so yeah, yeah. so so when I saw that incident on on Beale, I knew who Jim was, and by that point, one of my high school good friends was good friends with Adam Hohenberg. So we're we were sixteen. We drove. We heard. At, my friend picked me up and said, one of Adam's older sisters is having a birthday party at Adam's house and Sid Selvage is gonna play, come on. Okay. And yeah. so <laughs> we went and um, we were smoking a bone outside the house and your dad walked up. No, we weren't smoking a bone outside the house. We were standing around about to smoke a bone. Your dad walks up with his guitar case. First thing he, he says is, Anybody buy, anybody got any right. reefer? You know, I was like, <laughs> all right. So uh, we smoked a bone outside with your dad and went inside. Right. And uh, he played that. I just remember being on a sofa, laying back like this, <laughs> listening to his pristine voice right. just going in my ears in what seemed like a vaulted room. And it was kind of an Egglestonian world. I didn't realize at the time, sure. but it was just, you know, it, all these nice girls in cool outfits and a big you know, 100-year-old home in Midtown, it was, it was, and that's, so that's when I sort of began to know your dad, and right. I would go down and see him at Jefferson Square. Right. But I never, your dad was not approachable from the audience. Yeah. I don't know how I broke that barrier, but he would come walking into Jefferson Square in a leather jacket and go right to the front, pick up his guitar and start playing, and if Jimmy was joining him, the two of them would have banter that you could make out like every fifth word right and, right and, and jimmy was always going <laughs> and you're in the audience going it's it sure is funny but i don't know yeah, what it was yeah they're selling it but yeah yeah jeff square was something else man i remember being there as a little bitty kid i you know i was always mobbed up because like you know jake would open up the centipede machine and give me like a hundred credits <laughs> and I, I i got the most fruit in my shirley temple you know it was, it was great yeah um was uh, was that the Hohenberg house over on Overton Park? Uh, I want to say it was on uh, Morningside Drive. Okay, yeah, yeah, right over there. Yeah, because um, Gigi was dating my brother Eddie at the time, so that's ah. probably what facilitated that. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I obviously have a different perspective of my dad's gig, but like, I like the way you sort of described that. It's just that like, it's like sort of, he didn't even know if anybody was there. It was, yeah. the, you, could see the, you could see that the bright light was on him. Mm -hmm. And I, it seemed, the, the thing that was so cool was he didn't care. Right. It was like, he, he was there, he was gonna be on stage for 45 minutes. If one person was in the audience or 100 were in the audience, yeah. he was gonna do the same thing, which was mesmerize us with his voice. Right. And then, and at 45 minutes, he was gonna take his damn break. Yeah, oh you know? yeah, yeah. And then, and he was gonna disappear. He's gonna walk right past you. You might say, hey, great set, thank you. That, right, you right. Know? But, but it, was, it was a magnificent show, a magnificent set every time. Right, and I, you know, it's, and it, they, one thing that strikes me is, is, again, going back to how different it is from now, like they played so long and so late. I yeah. mean, like the sets were, like, I remember somebody, Frank Bruno put up a picture of like a, a, an app at Jefferson Square and it was like nine to two. <laughs> I'm like, no way, man. <laughs> um, so what about Baker? How I... Baker? Lee Baker. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember when I sort of made a personal connection with Lee. I, I don't know, but, I, uh, but we did get really comfortable a couple, Lee things that popped to mind. Actually, one is when I got my first, when the book first came out. Uh -huh. No, I got my first galley, pre, you know, bound yeah. copy. Right. So this is what the book was going to look and feel like. And at that point, I'd let Dickinson read it for kind of to kind of fact check me. Mm -hmm. And no one else had read it. And Lee Baker had a gig up at Huey's, and I was living around the corner, right. so I walked up to Huey's with a with a galley to give him. And as I was walking up, it occurred to me, wow, I wonder if I've just made this up. You right. Know, have I connected all these people in a way that makes sense to me, but isn't gonna make any sense to them? And it was giving that book to Lee that was the beginning of letting go. Right, saying, right. I've made this. Yeah. I can't unmake it at this point. Right. And I hope Lee finds it true and appropriate. And he did. Right. So yeah. he agreed with you with the dots you connected. He, all the, yes. Yeah. Because yeah. I called him quickly after. Right. I was like, you know, and, and these guys were interested in what I was doing. It's yeah. their lives, you know, so, so they read it quickly. So, uh, and I also, I remember going over to interview Lee um, for the book because I did some specific book in you know, mm -hmm. I had accumulated a bunch of interviews over time, but right. I did a bunch of interviews specific for the book. And I remember we went in the afternoon. He'd been bush hogging some of the horseshoe property that day. Right. We sat around, we had a great time. It was dark as hell when I left. Sky was full of stars. Mm -hmm. It was really cool. It's, yeah, I, I think that you sent, I've heard some of those interviews, right? Yes, yeah. that, that's right, that's right. Oh, I that, was, that, that was mesmerizing. Hearing his voice again yeah. was such a comforting yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, I got, I got my tapes, you know. I, I got your dad on, yeah. you must have your dad on there as well. God, yeah, it's crazy. You know, and that's the great thing. It's just his dad is, Steve, is Sid, Steve's dad is Sid Selvage, just to make yeah. it clear for everybody. Uh, on page uh, 200. <laughs> and, uh, um, <laughs> Family yeah. tree on. I know, right? Well, and, and you know, that's, the, you know, for me, obviously, being a, a son of mud boyers and son of, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really fortunate to have these recordings. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, the, the musical recordings? The musical the, recordings, yeah. yeah. Because I think that's, I think... The thing about Mudboy is it's a di you can hear the dialogue, you know. Yeah. When Mudboy is at its best, you can hear the four musicians or the uh, six or seven musicians 
in discussion, you yes, know, absolutely. because they never, like Jim said, they rehearsed for a Warner Brothers demo in like 1973, and it took them 12 years to get over the rehearsal. <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> don't rehearse. Whatever you do, don't rehearse. I remember that. And, you know, and it's funny because... What about you now? Do, do you rehearse? No. <laughs> I mean, and, well, and two with Sons of Mudboy, it's like, you know, people try to put it like, like with booking, and it's just like, man, our gigs just pop up. And when they pop up, we do them, yeah. you know, it's not like we got to get a gig, you know, it's like they just, it's, it's, you can't, you have to respect that sort of, you know, spirit. And it's so, it's funny. I feel like Mudboy almost, it, which it's funny that Mudboy contains like a, such a well-noted producer in Jim Dickinson. And it's a band that almost defies production Yeah. or really kind of does defy production. You know, it's like the, you know, you've, you have, and have heard, uh, all the tapes from WEVL, yeah. them playing, which is a very comfortable, safe space. Yeah. And they're just playing. They're just playing. I mean, they all did, a, I mean, you know, especially my dad and Baker did a bunch of just fundraiser gigs for Weevil. Yeah. And the difference between those and the, the albums, albums yeah. you know. It's a world of difference. It's, it's completely. I always find myself drawn towards the, the live stuff. The, yeah. Well, that's why the, the second album, so the first album, Known Felons and right. Drag. Uh, no, is that, the, is that the first one? Yeah. Known Felons yeah. and Drag. Mm -hmm. um, it was funny too, I got a cassette copy of that at one point, and the mastering on the cassette sounded better than the LP. Really? I've always wanted, yeah, I've, I've wanted to find another cassette and see if I was wrong. But, but, but it was, yeah, it was kind of produced, you know? Right. And, and the second one, Negro Streets at Dawn, mm -hmm. uh, taken from Allen Ginsberg poem, Howl. Right. Um, is a live, is a more live recording, you know? I remember going down to the studio on Beale where they recorded it that day, and there was a handful of people yeah. in the audience, and, and, and you get more of that feel, but it is those Weevil recordings yeah. where, you know, Baker goes, you can hear Baker go, uh, or like Jim will go, all right, Lee, your turn, and Lee will go, okay, uh, D. Yeah, Tells yeah. everybody the key, yeah. then says, we're gonna do a gospel a song. semi-spiritual. Yeah, semi <laughs> you know, and it's just like, people fall right in, and, I, I love the harmonies, the vocal harmonies. Yes. Because your dad's voice makes everything, makes every vocal he's involved in yeah. amazing. Jim's voice, you know, your, your dad and Jim would take these really unexpected harmony parts. They, they, they wove in a strange way, for sure. And it was like trying to, yeah, weave, um, you know, things that shouldn't work. Right. And, and it's beautiful. You just really, it creates so much, so much space and becomes this big fabric. It is, yeah, I've often, I've definitely found it to be almost sublime, just like the, it's, and, then, and then you get Baker come in and it's just straight earth, you know. Yeah. And the one thing that, like the playfulness of Baker, I think is a big part of the Mudboy thing. Because my dad was very serious and very academic, you yeah. know, um, most of the time, you know. And Jim was, but Baker... Was mischievous. You know I, mean? <laughs> I mean, he worked really hard. He he had this little concrete room that he would go in, you know. But um, I I think that mischief you hear, like I know there's one. I don't. I think Dickinson was he was the sickest of all of them. They're all really sick, and they're playing. But they're they're doing a th doing a thing for WEBL benefit, and they're playing Move to Kansas City, and they're like they've run out of verses to sing, and, and Baker just busts in at some point, just like, well, we're down in a weevil, and it ain't no joke, you need to send us your money, because the station's broke, we don't <laughs> <laughs> um, So yeah, I love that playfulness. Uh, there's, there was a shell gig they did, Mudboy Acoustic, um, 
and I saw video cameras there that day. Baker is playing. He sounds like a, a puppy dog off its leash. Right. You know, right. he's just running circles and yipping, and, and people are playing. And I remember thinking it, and someone sitting up a few rows turned back to me and goes, Lee Baker's crazy. I was like, man, I'm yes. hearing it too. He is, man. I mean, like, because, you know, Luther and I as guitar players, young guitar players, we would just sit right up there and, you know, and just see what was going to happen. It's like, and it was like watching a Formula One race on Vaseline or something. I mean, it was just like you did not know, like, where he was going to go. Because, and, and, all right, so this brings me to Moloch. Like, you did, obviously, you did research and interviews, but um, when did you first become aware of Moloch? Like as, as you know, like the and do the book, the book research. You know, okay. Jim, uh, somebody you know mentioned Moloch. I'd never. The album was really hard to find. Right. Back in the day, um, I, 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 you know, I knew. I started to learn of them by reputation. Uh -huh. Then, when I realized sort of their role, the house they had, the way that Danny right. Grafflin was their roadie, right. and Randall Lyon was their roadie, and the way that you know Buster Jones wove into the story mm -hmm. I realized and the way that Moloch kind of sets up Mudboy the the, the coming sure. Mudboy yeah it all they became you know I realized they, they rose in 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 the narrative right so so you weren't like hip to them like when you were first seeing Mudboy and checking that out you didn't hit I was not it. no yeah because I think going back to it there's such a stark contrast between Baker and Moloch and then the Baker that I knew and yeah. that you knew because like Moloch, it's very, he was in big Albert King phase. I think that was, was what the deal was, but it's very controlled, uh -huh. you know, like the, the leads are, they're great, you know, but, but, but then you listen to something like Batarang. Yes. That early Arden right. single, you know, and his solo is so killer. I remember on, uh, it's a flash in the casual song, Uptight Tonight, mm -hmm. like a real early recording for all of them, real early production for yeah. Jim. <laughs> dig this Jim, <laughs> Jim told me that that he would tap Baker when it was time to start playing the solo uh -huh. and, and, and he would <laughs> tap him when it was time to stop that like they didn't know anything switch on switch off yeah that's amazing yeah I mean and you could tell like the, I don't know if that was like the influence of Don Nix you know the Don Nix Don Nix Don Nix but like once you get to Cocaine Katie the the Booger record single that yeah. Moloch put out like that solo, and I'm I'm like veering off into guitar nerd stuff. Here. This is not for everybody, but that solo is way closer to Baker. It's frenetic like yep. that, and it's yep. just like it's just you know he play, he's playing over the bar and just like it, it just kind of just grabs you by the neck and shakes you up for a while and then plops you back down. For the guitar nerds, I thought there was a real strong similarity. This is a big leap between Lee Baker and Tom Verlaine. Yes, in the punk band, absolutely television. Yep, because. For one simple thing is that when you thought the solo was over, it was still go it was going to yeah. go it was going to go to a new story in the house. Yeah, you know that you didn't know was there. Very stream of conscious. Yeah, I feel like. Yeah, um, man. Um, and and hearing Baker sing was a cool thing too. It you really know? was because yeah, I mean he had his own. I mean, it's 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 sometimes difficult for me in playing some of those songs because I'm so used to hearing them and it's just like. His voice is so, you know, his voice, yeah. you know, and it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right, but you got to get over that. But, um, and so when was the, I'm not the first time, but you would start to see like Baker backing up Furry. Did, did you catch much of that? Or? Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, so then I started going to see Furry at like Trader Dick's. I don't think I saw Furry at High Cotton. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, boy, how did, you know, I, I can't remember the congealing in my mind mm -hmm. of Mud Boy. Right. You know, of the four individuals coming together as one, as the sum of greater than the individual parts. Right. Yeah. Well, going to this sort of the general... Too much Billy Beer. Too much Billy Beer. <laughs> I, yeah. We had a can of it, an empty can of it growing up. Just like... <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to part one of our two-part series with Robert Gordon and Steve Selvage. If you want to learn more about Robert's work, if you want to order your own copy of It Came From Memphis, just head to therobertgordon.com or grab one from your favorite local bookstore. If you want to learn more about what we're up to at the Levitt Shell and how you can help, just head over to levittshell.org. We truly appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon for part two of our special series with Robert Gordon. <laughs>